Hebrews chapter 7, and beginning in verse 20. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray together. Great God, like my namesake Samson of old, Lord, I ask that you would once again help come in your power as hands are placed on the pillars, bring down the temple of the enemy in our minds. We may see your truth, be delivered by that truth. For as we continue in the word, then we are true disciples and we'll know the truth. The truth will set us free. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if a fish knows that it lives in water. What goes through the mind of a fish? I'm sure when it gets out of water, it longs for the water. But while it's swimming in the water, does it know it's living in the water? And do we in the Western world know how dark it is all around us? We may think we are sophisticated, we've got everything, we've got all kinds of technology, we think we are so advanced. But spiritually speaking, without God's word, we live in vast, deep darkness. Here's something I wrote in my book on the, first, uh, five, on the five solars. Quoting Psalm 119, verse 130. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. Light dispels darkness. When the light of God's word shines into places of spiritual and cultural darkness, it transforms people, families, and nations. It does not matter how long the darkness has persisted. When light appears, darkness, like a hostile renegade usurper to the throne, must submit, bow its head, and walk away in shame. Again, light dispels darkness. The entrance of God's word brings light. Darkness is the shared experience of a people without light. Such was the case before the Protestant Reformation. The Bible was not known. In its place, religious superstition, tradition, and falsehood reigned. The Reformation brought God's word and the gospel back into the hands of the masses. Man-made traditions that had kept the people in bondage for centuries were now exposed for what they really were. Entire nations held captive by the powers of darkness were now exposed to the truth. 
Dramatic change occurred. Outside the book of Acts in the New Testament, there has not been a greater move of the Holy Spirit in the history of the church. Our world would never be the same. A Latin phrase, post tenebras lux, captured the unfolding historical drama, meaning after darkness, light. As the Bible came to be read in the common language of the people, the great central truths the Bible proclaimed were recovered, often at great cost to those who came to embrace them. End of quote. Martin Luther was a man who lived in darkness, and before the light of God's word broke in upon him, he lived in that darkness, and great was that darkness. He was pursuing studies in law when, in a thunderstorm adjacent to the town of Stottenheim in Germany, a lightning storm really affected him. The lightning bolt came very close to him. He thought he would die. He did not think he would survive. He feared God as a judge and cried out, Save me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. That's not the normal response to being in danger in such a way, but that was his honest cry, Save me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Fearing for his life, he cried out to St. Anne, St. Anne being the patron saint of minors, M-I-N-E-R-S. His father, Hans, was a mine owner. Luther came from a mining family, and so it seemed natural to cry out to the patron saint of minors for deliverance. His life was indeed spared, and true to his vow, within days he entered the monastery. The rest, as they say, is history. He joined an Augustinian monastery. But I want to ask this question, why St. Anne? Well, we've talked about it already. He, he understood Anne was the patron saint of miners, and he came from a mining family. It was natural for him to cry out to Anne. Historians tell us that before this time, Luther had never prayed directly to God. That was typical. That was typical of society. The view was this, God the Father was austere. He was not someone you could just go to. You could not just pray to him. Jesus, although he was the Savior, was also the judge. He was not someone you could come to directly either. And so Luther had never prayed to God. The better option at the time was to go to Mary. That's the better option. She's kind. She's considerate. She's compassionate. And after all, who can resist their mother? So the idea was pray to Mary and she will influence her son so that you might have your prayers answered. And if you can't pray to Mary, pray to one of the saints who will pass it up the line to Mary. Maybe it will get to God. Do you realize that's blasphemous in the extreme to pray to worship anything or anyone other than God is a blasphemy. It's also a slap in the face of Christ and a slap in the face of God the Father. Well-known scripture, for God, talking of the Father, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It was the Father's plan to send the Son into the world to save sinners. 
The Father sent him into the world intent on saving rebel sinners. Under the Roman church's tyranny, many have been put to death for the simple crime of praying directly to God. I could take you to places in England where people have been burnt at the stake. I remember of one father burnt at the stake, his crime, teaching the Lord's Prayer to his children in English. The stakes are high. The truth may cost our lives. But the Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not. That's Proverbs 23, verse 23. Buy the truth and sell it not. Whatever the price is for truth, pay it. Never sell it. To sell the truth means the selling away, the selling of your soul. Buy the truth, sell it not. The good news is this. The biblical Mary has never heard a single prayer. Her peace, her felicity in heaven has never been disturbed. And just as the revelation of the early chapters of Hebrews, if we understand what is revealed to us, keeps us from the cults, we'll understand Jesus is truly God, truly man. This chapter, Hebrews 7, will keep us out of Roman Catholicism. We'll see the perfection of the work of Christ, his person and his work. R. Kent Hughes writes this, an illustration. During his student days in France, Donald Gray Barnhouse, well-known preacher, pastor, he was pastor at that time of a little evangelical reform church in the French Alps. Once a week, he went to a neighboring village for an instruction class. Each time he made the trip, he passed the local Roman Catholic priest going on a similar errand in the opposite direction. They became good friends and often chatted together for 10 minutes or so before they went their separate ways. On one occasion, the priest asked him why we Protestants do not pray to the saints. Why should we? Barnhouse asked. The priest launched an illustration of the way one might get an interview with the president of the French Republic. One could go to the Ministry of Agriculture or to the Department of the Interior, etc. Any one of the cabinet ministers, members, might succeed in opening the door of the president's office so that Barnhouse might see him. The priest's triumphant smile implied that the simplicity and clarity of the argument was such as to preclude any reply. At that time, Raymond Poincare was president of the Republic. He lived in the palace of the LAC in Paris, the equivalent of the White House. Barnhouse said to his friend, But, Monsieur, suppose that I were the son of Monsieur Poincare. I'm living in the LEC with him. I get up from the uh, breakfast table and kiss him goodbye on the cheek as he goes off to his office. Then I go down to the Ministry of the Interior and ask the fourth secretary of the second assistant if it is possible for me to see the Minister of the Interior. If I succeed in reaching his office, my request is for an interview with my papa. Hughes writes, the absurdity of a son's 
having to go through a father's assistant to reach him, was at once apparent. The priest was thunderstruck as Barnhouse added that he was a child of God, an heir of God, and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, and that he had been saved through the death of the Savior, and thus had become a son with immediate access to the Father. We're in Hebrews 7. Go back to Hebrews 4 for a moment. Verse 14. We'll read familiar words to us. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Hear that. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with boldness of speech, draw near to the throne of grace directly to the throne, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Immediate and full access. What a blessing that is. As we've looked at Hebrews 7 already, we've seen in the verses immediately before verse 20, verses 18 and 19, there's an indication that a double change has taken place. The first change is negative, the setting aside of the covenant based on law, Levitical priesthood, because it could not do what was needed. The second change is positive, the introduction of a better hope which provides direct access to God. Look with me in verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the Lord made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We can come directly to Him. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, talking of the Levitical system. But this one was made a priest, talking of Christ, with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Many believe Hebrews is a sermon, and in a sermon... The preacher emphasizes certain things and repeats certain things, and this is something that is repeated continually. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn, He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. So the point the writer is making is that Jesus' priesthood was confirmed by an oath, unlike the system of Levitical priesthood. You see, God didn't need the oath. We know that. He knew, he knows, he always will be faithful and true to his word. But we need it for our assurance. We need it for our surety, S-U-R-E-T-Y. It's a beautiful word. If you don't know it, I'd love to introduce it to you. Another word similar to it is guarantee, which is the word uh, we find in the ESV. Surety, guarantee. We need that. We are prone to wonder if God will be faithful to his word. And God has given us surety. This hope is sure and steadfast. As Hebrews 6.19 says, a steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, follow the argument. 
Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A better priesthood established by a better covenant, providing better promises. That word guarantee or surety literally means this, one who stands security. It's a word found only here in the entire New Testament. Here's the point. As long as Jesus lives, the covenant of our salvation is fully assured. While in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's the Levitical priesthood. But the contrast, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Literally, uh, the phrase is this, one that is not passed to another. Jesus does not hand his priesthood on to someone else. He does not serve for a little while and then hand the priesthood over. He is the priest now and forever. He's a permanent priest. There's no need to ask, who's the current priest? He's the great high priest now and forever, and we have him. We have such a great high priest, and he lives forever. Follow the logic of the author. And uh, I trust you brought your brains with you as you came to church today. As you follow the logic, there's an unmistakable and unavoidable conclusion that we reach. And it's found in verse 25. Consequently, in other words, understanding all of this, here's what we can now say. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. An expression I once heard was, Jesus saves from the guttermost to the uttermost. I like that. He saves completely. He saves totally. He doesn't do half a job or most of the job or almost all of the job and then leaves it up to us. He does it all. Nothing is excluded. Nothing is to be added. And this was the whole plot of the Reformation. Rome believed in the Scripture. Rome believed the Bible was the Word of God. They also believed that the Bible alone is a dangerous thing. They believed in grace. They believe in faith. They believe in Christ. They believe in the glory of God. What they don't believe, and didn't then and don't now, is that salvation and justification is based on the Scripture alone, By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Alone. The issue then and the issue now is the necessity versus the sufficiency of grace. The necessity of Christ versus the sufficiency of Christ. Rome will say, and all man-made religions will say, you need Christ at least of the Christian persuasion. You need Christ, but you also need this. But you also need to do this. But you need, but, but you need to add to it. The cry of the reformers was the solas. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. And that's what gives rise to the statement, to the glory of God alone. You see, if you and I have a part in it, some of the glory goes to us. If you're around the throne and you talk with someone 
a fellow heavenly citizen and ask, why are you here? You're not going to hear, well, it was, uh, I don't want to keep it, well, I'm going to keep it low, keep it quiet, but it was my choice that got me here. It was my humbling of myself. You see, my twin brother heard the same gospel and I guess I had more humility than him. That's why I'm here. No. We were blind, we were deaf, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We couldn't hear, we couldn't see. We were not just short-sighted, we were blinded. We were not just short of hearing, we were deaf. We could not hear his word. We were not just a little bit sick or even mortally sick. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And God raised us from the dead, gave us eyes to see, ears to hear. And we heard because of the effectual call of God. Just as Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was not cooperating. Jesus didn't enter the tomb beforehand and said, look, I've got this proposal. I'm going to raise you from the dead, but you understand, I can't do this without your consent. Will you fill in the form and say, yes, I agree to this, because you know, I will not violate your will to stay dead. Nor did, after the resurrection, Lazarus immediately go and seek an attorney, a lawyer, because his rights were violated, his rights to stay dead. No, he was forever grateful for the mercy of God he received. And if Jesus had not named him Lazarus, everybody in the grave would have come forth. And if you're a Christian, you are that dramatic of a miracle. You may not have heard it with earthly ears, but Jesus has stood at the tomb of your dead heart and said, Malcolm, come forth. Jennifer, come forth. John, come forth. And you came. And that's why all the glory goes to Jesus for your salvation. All glory. But I responded, yes, after he made you alive. I I had faith, yes, and that faith was the gift of God. But I repented, yes, and faith is, is a gift and so is repentance according to the scripture. I can't even take credit for the faith I have. He is the author and the perfecter of faith. Books don't get written without an author. Faith doesn't happen without the author. And if you're presently putting your faith in Christ, Jesus is the author of it. And here's the good news. He that began the good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If I start something, it's liable to somehow maybe not get finished. But if God starts, he finishes. When God took me on, I wondered, did you realize what you were taking on? Some of the things that I've done since I became a Christian is worrying, let alone before. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You've got the same issue. Something comes out of my mouth and it wasn't to God be the glory. Do you know what I'm talking about? In traffic. And I'm shocked. I didn't know it was in there. It's not as if God says, well, I'm shocked too. I had no idea that was still in you. But God took us on knowing the truth about you and the truth of what he will do in sanctification. He that began the good work, he will finish it. Rome then and now believes the Bible 
is the Word of God. You need it. You need the Bible, but it's not enough. You need our infallible interpretation. After all, it's the church that gave you the Bible. No, it's actually the Bible that gave us the church. Just as in the beginning there was nothing till God said, let there be, God has spoken, I will build my church, and he's doing it. We believe in what is called the perspicuity of Scripture. Don't be put off by that big word. You see a perspex pulpit, and it means it's a see-through pulpit. You can see beyond it. You can see what's behind it. And the perspicuity of Scripture means it's clear. You can see into the Scripture and understand it, even if we're children. That's what we read in 2 Timothy 3. The Scripture... 2 Timothy 3.15, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's that clear. You've got to have help to misunderstand it. And in that section, 2 Timothy 3, the message is the Bible equips God's minister, you Timothy and anyone who serves the Lord, for everything he needs in ministry, whether it's evangelism, preaching or counseling, the Bible's enough. That's why in 2 Timothy 4, the next verse is, as the herald of God, preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, preach it when the people like it and preach it when they don't like it. Your job is to stay faithful and herald the word. But here's the message. Jesus saves completely. Jesus actually saves. Not merely that he makes people savable. He saves. And he does it eternally. No one is going to go into eternity and say, well, I was saved for a little while. For 10 years he saved me, but then I kind of lost it. No, he saves, and when he saves, he saves eternally. When true faith originates in the heart, it's because of the author who has brought that faith into being, and he will nourish that faith and cause even the most wayward sheep to come home. Peter was a true sheep. He denied Christ. Judas never was. He betrayed Christ. And Peter came back. Judas never did. Why? Because of Christ. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 22? Satan's desire to sift you like wheat, but I have what? Finish it for me. Prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. You see, our confidence is not our ability to hang on, but his ability to hold on to us. It's like a little boy with his father crossing the road. He's holding on to dear life to his father's hand, but we know, the father knows, if he loses his grip, it doesn't matter, the father has got him in his grip. Your life is hid with Christ in God and he will hold you fast. How does he save? By means of his irrevocable, eternal priesthood. Because he lives forever, his priesthood is forever. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, to the totality, completely, those who draw near to God through Him. You come to Him. He saves you completely. 
stare at those words. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. We in the dark as Gentiles don't get it, but the Jews, the recipients of this letter, certainly would, the, the Jewish Christians. See, we know scriptures like John 14, 6. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is absolutely true. It must be broadcast to all the world. He's the way, the truth, the life. But if we understand it now in the light of Hebrews, he's the way because he's the high priest. He's the savior. He's the one who is interceding. He's doing it all. No one's getting to God except by him because he's the only authorized high priest. He's a perfect priest. And he intercedes perfectly, read the rest of the verse, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Who's the them? The people of God. He prayed for them in John 17. I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for those you gave me. And that's what he's doing now at the Father's right hand. Interceding for us. Hear these words, Romans 8, you know them, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Who's the all here? The people of God in context. is speaking of the death of Christ for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Same group. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We're saved by the death of Christ and the intercession of Christ for us. We're saved because of the present day ministry of the Lord Jesus. His death and resurrection, hear this, are the basis of his intercession. We sin, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, says this one must be discarded. He must be banished from God's presence. And the son says, but I died for him, Father. You remember, his name was on my breastplate as I went into the Holy of Holies and made sacrifice for him. He stands in my finished work, Father. And the Father accepts the sacrifice of the Son on the behalf of his sheep. What's the message? Jesus lived in our place. He who gave the law kept the law. He died in our place. He died taking the punishment of lawbreakers. And he rose again. And his priesthood continues now and forever. He's the guarantee, he's the surety, an intercession, intercessor. Do you see in verse 25, the word save and the word intercession? Both are in the same verse. Andrew Murray writes this, Without ceasing, there streams forth from him to the Father the prayer of his love for everyone and every need of those that belong to him. His very person and presence is that prayer so closely and inseparably is he identified with those he calls his brethren. In the handout notes, you'll see 14 contrasts between 
the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. One of the uh, items that needs to be said is when you're counting things in Scripture, one of the things that hallmark it being a Scripture is there's usually seven. If you find five, uh, you look for a six, and then if you find six, there's usually a seventh. And there are 14 contrasts here, which is seven times two. And I want this to excite you. Maybe you've never been excited by a list. Uh, as you go to the grocery store, are you really excited that you've got a list of things to get? Uh, maybe. Maybe not. But if you grasp this, you'll grasp what Hebrews 7 is all about. And as I've been in Hebrews 7 for some time, at least in my head, I'm loving Hebrews 7 in a way I've never loved it before, and I'm thinking it's the most amazing chapter. It's hard because it's hard because I've lived in darkness. I didn't grow up in Israel. To Israel was given the oracles of God. That didn't happen when I grew up in England and as I grow up here. We live in darkness, but Hebrew people were raised at least in a culture where God's word was available. Thank God for Christian homes and families that turn the tables on that. But that's not always the case. Hebrews chapter 7 lists 14 contrasts. Number 1, seen in verses 1 and 2 and verse 14. Mel, which is short for Melchizedek. I know you knew that. Melchizedek, his priesthood and kingship are combined the Levitical system, the priests came from the tribe of Levi, kings from the tribe of Judah. No interchange was permitted. Second, seen in Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek gave Abraham bread and wine, which were emblems of the new covenant. You read of that in Matthew 26. Not previously given by Abraham. In the Levitical system, Levi in Abraham only gave back to Israelites part of the sacrifices previously received from them. We've dealt with that in the early verses of Hebrews 7. The third contrast, verse 2, 4, and 9. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. Levi paid or gave tithes through Abraham. Fourth, verse 3, and then verse 23 and 24. Melchizedek, due to an indestructible life, a permanent priesthood is established which is never passed on to others by succession. In the Levitical system, because of mortality, it's only a temporary priesthood. You serve for a while, then you're gone and you have to pass it on to someone else. Fifth, verse 6, Melchizedek. Does not trace genealogy from Abraham. In the Levitical system, you must, to be a priest, be descended from Abraham. Six, verse six, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, therefore is greater. In the Levitical system, they owe their blessing to Abraham, and that system is therefore less. Seventh, verses 11, 19, and 28, Melchizedek provides direct access to God and perfection. In the Levitical system, it could not provide direct access or perfection. It was a temporary covering. It was pointing to perfection that was to come. Eight, verse 16, Melchizedek established by the power of an indestructible life, talking of his priesthood. 
The Levitical priesthood established on the basis of a physical requirement. These are all things we've gone over. Number nine, verses 20 and 21. Melchizedek appointed with God's oath. The Levitical priesthood appointed without an oath. 10, verse 22. Melchizedek's priesthood is bringing in a superior covenant. Levitical covenant is an inferior covenant. Number 11, verses 23-24. Melchizedek, one priest who is all-sufficient. The Levitical system, many priests, and because of death, never sufficient. 12, verse 25. Melchizedek, able to save completely and forever. Levitical system, unable to save. 13, verse 27. Melchizedek, there's no need to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Jesus had no sins. A Levitical priest needed to sacrifice first for their own sins. And lastly, number 14, verse 28, Melchizedek, God's perfect son. A Levitical priest, a man with human frailty and weakness. I don't know if that excites you. But those 14 points are remarkable, especially for Jews. I've said it before, and it's so profound. Hebrews was written to Hebrews. They get it. And as they're reading this, this may not knock your socks off, but Jews are amazed by this, because this is flawless logic. These 14 points stand and shows the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood based on four verses of the Old Covenant. And that's where the writer plunges in. It's dramatic. And if we follow the logic of the author, we'll be more than excited by this. This is a list to put on your refrigerator. This is a list to go over and over to realize the technicolor Redemption that God has given us. What a great high priest we have. He is better, so far superior than anything of the Levitical system. Jesus and his present day ministry of high priest is what secures and guarantees our salvation. Not merely his death. His death did it all. And his intercession continues on the basis of his death, on the basis of the cross. Father, you remember, I interceded for this one at the cross by way of my death. And I plead the benefits of my cross work for that one who has sinned. That's why scriptures that we now can recite come alive to us if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because of the greatness of the sacrifice. Because of the greatness of our interceding high priest. I have a friend in Ireland who was just recently out in the Hebrides, islands off Scotland for two months as a vacation. One of the churches he and his wife visited was supposedly a Reformed church, but sometimes the name on the door doesn't mean that they understand the Reformed faith. And at the Lord's table, though the sermon had included the gospel, 
it seemed as if the preacher, according to the testimony of my friend Graham, he was trying to exclude people from the table at a vast rate. He was telling people why they don't qualify. You need to be this, you need to do that, and have you looked inside? And there's a phrase that is well used, and it's rights. For every inward look, take ten looks at Christ. It was as if it's the other way around. For every look at Christ, take ten looks within. And when you and I do that, we see our sin. And you know, in that service, only one person partook of the Lord's Supper, and it was the minister. He's the only one who qualified. No. The gospel is for all those who believe plus nothing. Come, you sinners. Come to Christ. What a faithful Savior. What a dramatic redemption He has secured for all those who believe in Him. He's able to save completely those who come to God by Him. That's the message. Come to Him. He has done it all. He has made salvation secure. Not just possible. Secure. Guaranteed. Because Christ has gone to the cross. He has made full payment for sin. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. By His stripes you were healed. He's done it all. Jesus prayed for Peter knowing he would undergo the severest trial of his life. Have you ever gone through something? You got through as his child because of your grit, yes, but because of his faith that gave you that grit. His faithful promise is to keep you. He's able to keep you from falling, book of Jude, and present you faultless before his throne. He's able to do it and he does it. Why did Peter's faith not fail? Why why was it that only days later he was the one restored to such a place that he was the preacher on the day of Pentecost? You'd think you'd need 10 years in probation after denying Christ. No, when God restores, he restores. He was the preacher who said, you crucified the Messiah, but God raised him up. 3,000 people saved under Peter's ministry. This one who had denied Christ. What a faithful Savior. You see, we get enveloped and think, what an amazing preacher. No, look beyond the preacher and see the one who restored failing Peter. Do you know the gospel is for failing Christians? It's not just a message for the world. It's a message for the church. We never get past the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And if this cross has saved you, this cross of Christ will continue to save you. How much more shall the blood of Christ do what God promises? Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for us. Well, he's in heaven. Yes, he's in the place where he needs to be. He's not on some earthly throne, although he rules over all the thrones of earth. He's in the place of all authority, at the right hand of the Father, having sat down. And that's where 
The writer of Hebrews takes us in chapter 8. The main point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's right where he needs to be. He hears you. The Father always hears the Son. Jesus said that. Child of God, Jesus is praying for you. That's so much more of an encouragement than simply saying, can I make you feel good? Let's get some nice music in to soothe you. You're feeling heavy laden and bowed down. I want to give you a nice feeling for a few minutes. You can lose that feeling on the way home. Certainly by Tuesday. But this grounds your hope in something objective. What a message. That's why there's such an emphasis on faith in the book of Hebrews, an entire chapter given over to it. Why? These Hebrew Christians couldn't see much in the natural realm to encourage them. They were under persecution. They were suffering. There wasn't a whole mass movement at this point of Christians getting saved. And they were persecuted left out by the society around them, the Jewish society, they were excluded from the synagogue, and that meant everything in that culture. And so the writer was saying this, see beyond what you can see. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Without faith it's impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let us then run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, not Mary or the saints, Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. That's where he is. You can't see him, but your heart knows it's true, and by the revelation of his word, you know what is reality. The reality is this. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. That tells me everything I've ever observed with my senses is not as real as God's word. Everything I see can pass away. His word never will. And when he says something, and then when he swears by an oath, you can be assured, Jesus saves all who come to God by him. And he saves them completely. Jesus is praying for you. And we end with a quote by Robert Murray McShane, Scottish minister who had a dramatic ministry, though he died at the age of 29. Many of you know of the McShane Bible reading plan. He's the author of that. A quote of his, I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. He prayed most for Peter, who was to be most tempted. I am on his breastplate. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. I'm sure many of you know the words. Let me recite those now. Arise, 
my soul arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every grace and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Let's pray. Lord, inherent in all of this is the wonderful gospel. The Father sent the Son into the world to be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die an atoning death, be raised from the dead, be seated at the place of all authority, having sat down, accomplishing all you set him out to do. And anyone who repents and believes this good news is forgiven, justified, now and forever. What a gospel. Write this truth on our hearts now and forever. We have a forever high priest. According to the order of Melchizedek. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.